You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is only about a third of females experience orgasm regularly through intercourse. About a third of them can achieve orgasm with intercourse but need additional stimulation. A third never reach orgasm during intercourse but can via some other form of stimulation. Having orgasms outside of intercourse is normal for women, but historically people thought orgasms only happened for mature women, which you would find in old literature. Then scientists in the 60s, before I was born, demonstrated that an orgasm is an orgasm no matter how it occurs. And the way in which you reach it actually doesn't reflect your mental health or your emotional maturity. So hopefully that makes you feel good. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. On that note, and very topically, today's guest is none other than Jeffrey Miller. He's an evolutionary psychologist who's best known for his books, The Mating Mind and Spent, which came out a couple of years ago in 2009. He's a professor at the University of New Mexico. I go Albuquerque. I grew up there. And he's a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and did experimental psychology at Stanford. 
basically, I would say that Jeffrey is one of those guys who knows a lot more about spirituality and sex than the average guy. So I'm particularly interested to talk with Jeffrey today about things that go from more of the physical all the way up to the emotional and the psychological side of how people perform well. And I don't mean perform well in the bedroom, although we may touch on that. Jeffrey, welcome to Bulletproof Radio. It's great to be here, Dave. Looking forward to it. Sounds like great topics. Now, you're working on a new book. Are you up for talking about it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. What's it called? It's called Mate, M-A-T-E, Mate. And the subtitle, we think, is going to be something like The Young Man's Guide to Sex, Women, and Dating. And my co-author is Tucker Max. And we're basically aiming to write the book that we wish we had had as teenage boys trying to figure out this weird other species, females, and where we didn't really get very good advice about how to understand women, what they want, how to date, how to appeal to them. Didn't get good advice from our dads, our high school health classes, uh, from the media, from porno, from anybody. My my high school and maybe eighth grade sex health classes were really enlightening, right? I, I'm guessing yours weren't. Uh, I also wish that I had a book like that, but I mean, you've got Tucker Max. By the way, Tucker's a friend. I'm working with Tucker on a, on a project as well on uh, helping to get the Bulletproof Diet book out and to get it into as many hands as possible where it'll help people. But I mean, isn't this going to be sort of like yet another pickup artist book or are you going to do something different? We're going to do something really quite different because our focus is really – you know, most guys aren't sociopaths and don't actually want to <laughs> manipulate women into bed the way, that, the way that some have argued the pickup artist scene tries to do. Yeah. So, you know, most young guys actually want girlfriends. Shocking how that works. There's a lot of good reasons why it's kind of a good idea. It's just more efficient to get a girlfriend than to chase a sequence of one-night stands. You'll actually end up with more success, more happiness, more sex, and a better woman. So our focus is cultivating the traits that are going to make you a more attractive boyfriend in order to get a great girlfriend. Just, you know, so guys don't end up alone and frustrated and, and you know, shooting up a bunch of UC, SB campuses or whatever. Um, we basically want to make it easier for, for young men and young women to find each other and to have win-win relationships, mutually beneficial relationships. So, so I didn't think we'd go here in this interview, but back when I was oh, a young man, I had a job in a, in a water amusement park, you know, middle of high school kind of time frame. And I was stuck selling tickets in a booth. And in this booth, there was nothing but like teenage girl magazines and I was bored to tears. So I started reading like young miss and teen, whatever they were called. I don't remember. And there was this awesome article that said, how to tell if a guy is hitting on you. And this was advice. Fund. So I read this, I'm like, this is awesome. It's like step-by-step instruction. So I tried it on the next ticket and I had this little kind of yeah, yeah. experimental thing and oh my God, it worked. And that was a really good summer for me, given that there were, you know, mm-hmm. girls my age in swimsuits coming up to the window, letting me, you know, hit on them basically while I sold them yeah. a ticket. 
so that for me, that was actually transformative because I'm like, oh my goodness, like it's actually possible to do something here. Is there going to be advice in this book for women to understand how to effectively interact with men? Because the advice in that book was mm-hmm. actually pretty, it wasn't very accurate as far yeah. as I could tell. Yeah. That might be a follow-up book. Okay. I mean, we have, we have thought seriously about doing something yeah. like that, but, um, you know, we'd probably want to bring a female co-author on board yeah. and the challenges that women face are really kind of different. You know, um, it's easy to get a guy to sleep with you if you're basically like <laughs> symmetrical and <laughs> under 80. The problem for women is getting a high quality guy to stick around with you, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's more about mate retention than mate attraction. And the way that guys are choosy about the women that they stick with um, it's like we're not that choosy at first, but we're really choosy about who we settle down with, who we marry, who we, you know, offer a ring to. And women call that commitment phobia. Right. Right. The way that guys are like, oh, if you won't sleep with me in a one night stand, you must be sex phobic. Right? Right. Each sex derogates the others being choosy. I, I'm, I'm um, so that would be a diff- that would be a different book. Okay. I, I want to see a book someday that has like printed in one direction on the top half is the instructions for boys and printed upside down on the bottom half is the one for women because I got so much value from sort of looking at it from the women's perspective when I was trying to learn how to date. And it, it seems like you'd read the guy's book, oh, now I get it, and turn it over and go, oh, that's what they're thinking. Kind of like in a negotiating class where you negotiate with someone and then when you're done, you get to know what they knew, which never happens in a real world negotiation. Yeah. I, I, there'd be great value there. So drop a few tidbits for women who are going to pick up that book, even if they're not meant to. Yeah, and I think they'll enjoy reading it anyway because yeah. a lot of it will probably help them kind of clarify their their mating goals and what traits they're actually paying attention to in guys and kind of how to assess those. And, you know, particularly young women don't, don't know their own preferences that well. So I think the framework that we offer to young yeah. guys might also be helpful to them. This is uh, going to be a book that helps a lot of people, I, I think. And your comment about there being less of those uh, UCSB shoot 'em ups uh, when you read that guy's postings, it, it was really clear he, did, he was lacking guidance and understanding and was yeah. a total nutter in other ways. Yeah. So let's fast. Let's let's go backwards. I just mentioned kind of how I got my education there from a teenage magazine. <laughs> how did you get involved in studying human sexuality? It was actually a little bit more roundabout than you might think. Um, the honest answer is, it's a little bit weird. I mean, when I started grad school at Stanford, I intended to study cognitive psychology, right, which is all about learning and memory and categorization and how we think and the most abstract forms of thought. And within six months, I was bored to tears with it. I couldn't stand it. I wanted something a little more grounded in real life. And I met a couple of my advisors, postdocs, Lita Cosmides and John Tooby, who were really the founders of my field, evolutionary psychology. And they said, hey, there's a way to study human nature and emotions and preferences and you know, the way people actually interact socially and sexually that's completely grounded in cutting-edge evolutionary biology that combines, you know, the behavioral sciences and the humanities and the biological sciences and wraps it all up in a, a really powerful package. And that was super appealing to me intellectually. But um, a lot of those early evolutionary psych folks, they kind of neglected sex, they neglected sexual selection, they didn't 
pay that much attention to Darwin saying, hey, and Darwin said this back in 1871. Darwin said the reason why we evolved language and music and morality is to attract mates. Most people don't know that. Wow. But he actually made that argument in The Descent of Man. And, you know, I read Darwin and I read the other biologists and I thought, oh my God, sexual selection is a really powerful evolutionary process. It doesn't just explain differences between males and females. Right. It can actually explain all kinds of extravagant traits and behaviors and ornaments, you know, animal song and plumage and, and yeah, potentially human language and music. And I had girlfriends in grad school who I talked about this stuff with, right? And they were like, yeah, female choice is pretty important and most guys don't appreciate it or how it works, or what we look for. And I also was running a lot of evolutionary computer simulations where we would actually simulate how sexual selection works uh, in these bits of software called genetic algorithms. And even there, I was blown away by the power and creativity of sexual selection for kind of you know, exploring the space of possibilities in, in an evolutionary process. So it's kind of a combination of the personal like the the hacker, the coder in me that was impressed by just sexual selection as a computational process. Right. And, you know, the intellectual excitement of evolutionary psychology. Now I've got to ask this. Uh, Chris Ryan was on the show, you know, Sex at Dawn. Uh, as an evolutionary psychologist, what's your take on the multiple partner versus single partner way we're wired? I used to be really skeptical of Sex at Dawn. Um, I'd read some pretty critical reviews of it by, you know, evolutionary yeah. psychology folks I respect. But then I saw Chris Chris Ryan give a talk at um, the Paleo FX conference a couple months ago. I hadn't seen him talk before. Uh, we had dinner. We had chats. Um, I stood up after his talk and said, I, I bet we're equally surprised that I actually <laughs> agree with everything you said, which he thought was hilarious. And I think there's big individual differences. I think a lot of humans are very strongly wired to find a long-term partner and be pretty happy with a long-term partner. And certainly as a species, we're kind of built to do a lot of pair bonding. Human males are built to do a lot of heavy investment in kids and to stick around. And women are built to try to get that investment and keep, keep guys around. But you know, religiously imposed lifelong monogamous marriage is not natural. That's kind of a cultural invention since civilization, agriculture, inheritance, money. And I think there are, there are other people who are kind of naturally polyamorous and like to just form social relationships with lots of people through sex the way that bonobos do. And I think we just have to respect that diversity. Right and and not pretend that there's just one natural proper way for human sexuality to be expressed. I have a lot of uh, polyamorous friends. A lot of them are transhumanists, and most of them aren't that happy in their relationships. It's like it's like a swirl of chaos around them. But I, I have a few who have been happily polyamorous for a long time, and. I was really fortunate that Chris came up uh, to my house. So we actually filmed a live, both of us in the same place and got to hang out for a bit. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I met his 
I want to say wife, but it might have been fiance or girlfriend, but his his yeah. mate. Yeah. And uh, it was it was enlightening because he's a solid guy, and and I didn't see a lot of fluff in there, and his arguments made sense. And yeah. your argument that hey, maybe some people are just wired that way, maybe even from a evolutionary perspective, there may be an advantage that some of us are more monogamous and some of us are less monogamous, and yeah. for survival, hey, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, and people, you know, people differ in their kind of attractiveness, and some people can kind of get away with having a lot of partners and not provoke well they provoke jealousy but their partners kind of have to suck it up and deal with it and then other people are you know not as attractive and if they find a mate then they're they're happy so this is still under debate you know yeah. we're still trying to figure out uh, an accurate picture of human sexuality not not just what was typical but also what what the whole range of variety would have been among our our prehistoric ancestors uh, well, well said, and I, I think that debate's out uh, for sure. I, I'm seeing this at a lot of the conferences I go to, where there's oftentimes not just men, but you know, women who are talking about this. And so there's an opening up of of people being willing to talk about it. Even the fact that I can talk about orgasm preference at the beginning of a show and not have it censored <laughs> isn't yeah. that yeah. you know. 20 years ago that wouldn't happen actually so things have changed what else has changed in our sexual culture though compared to where it used to be because it seems like the change is happening really quickly today what are you seeing well online dating is a huge thing um a lot of people now are are finding boyfriends girlfriends serious long-term partners through you know the wonder of the internet and it's weird in a sense it's a lot more natural to find a partner that way than to go to a bar and get drunk and try to talk to somebody when there's a lot of background noise and when everybody's anxious and everybody knows it's a meat market, right? At least with online dating, you can kind of say, hey, here's me, here are my preferences, here's what I, what I do, uh, here's what I'm looking for. And I think that is more similar to a kind of natural mating style because remember in prehistory, you would hardly have ever met a stranger yeah. Right. Anybody you meet, you would have heard about already sort of indirectly through family or friends or, oh, there's this cute guy in the clan on the other side of the hill. Right. <laughs> and and you should go meet him because he's an awesome hunter or, or drummer or whatever. Right. So you would have had almost the equivalent of a kind of online dating profile through the social gossip network. And that's cool it's exciting i think it's a much more efficient way for people to find each other particularly right. people who are uh, who have rare traits like super high iq or or if they're polyamorous or if they're right. so the bar scene never worked that well for me it, just because it's super loud and you basically look at someone you're getting pretty drunk and then like great what what happened that was particularly fun and I, I don't know, it, it, it was never cool. So I had these, uh, these business cards made when I was a young, relatively angry, egotistical guy. Yeah. And I became an ordained minister at, at a young age, uh, mostly because it was convenient. So I had this card that said, Reverend Dave Asprey, the church of the bean. And it had a little cup of coffee on it. Yeah. And I went to school in a farming town. So I could, oh, look, here's my card. And then mm -hmm. if I got this look of like, you're the devil, I was like, well, I probably wasn't interested in dating this person anyway because they don't have a sense of humor. And if they laughed, I was yeah. like, hey. So it was kind of yeah. like like the filter that would have gone into online dating, except we didn't have it. And I maybe didn't have the social skills to just go, 
oh, and just say <laughs> who yeah. I was or yeah. whatever. But okay, so we have that filtering thing now. How has that change happened compared to what would have happened when we go back to cavemen when it comes to things like STDs? Like I suppose you get you know, downvoted on some of the sites for online dating, but how did we handle STDs from an evolutionary perspective? Well, you know, this is one of the big problems, I guess, with, with the Chris Ryan view of like yeah. everybody fucks everybody all the time is that that's really a great environment for, for pathogens, Right, that would be delightful to gonorrhea and her- herpes. That would mm-hmm. be the perfect environment for them to spread, and there'd be real costs. I mean, a lot of those S- STDs, you know, cause infertility in women. They cause all kinds of health problems. A lot of them, like syphilis, affect your brain yeah. and your behavior. I have a pet theory that certain personality disorders might actually be sexually transmitted infections. There's some good data backing that up. I, I've seen a couple studies on it. Yeah. So that's a big problem. And, you know, some of the the dangers that women face from kind of mating more promiscuously, pregnancy, STDs, you know, sexual reputation damage, they're kind of serious problems. I mean, the reputation damage depends on the culture and what's normal and what's expected. But getting pregnant is an objective issue that, you know, leads to heavy, heavy maternal investment, pregnancy, breastfeeding, childcare. And you don't want to be indiscriminate about who you get pregnant by. Yeah. So that, that probably leads against that argument. Well, let's, let's chat a little bit about exercise and sex. Is sex good exercise? I mean, cavemen didn't really need exercise because they had to eat, so they had to kill stuff to eat, et cetera, et cetera. But what about now? Can I replace my cardio with sex? We don't know. This is the hilarious <laughs> thing, right? There was one study done on this back in the early 80s, actually trying to measure the calorie output of people having sex. And, you know, it was a pretty good study for the time, but not that many subjects. And that is the one study that gets repeated and repeated third hand 17th hand in every you know at least once per issue in cosmo magazine and probably once per issue in maxim we don't really know the calorie cost of sex and we don't know how long or how often people had sex we know that we didn't actually ejaculate 20 times a day like poor male lions have to do Right. To, get, to get a lioness pregnant. But we do copulate longer than almost any other primate, right? Chimpanzee and bonobo copulations, just a few seconds. Human copulation, even back in the day, back before people kind of like understood about female orgasm, it's at least a few minutes, which is super long by most, most animal standards. And it's vigorous. It's a kind of test of at least kind of the the aerobic equivalent of sprinting, right, if not marathoning. So high-intensity interval sex, is that going to enter CrossFit anytime soon? Well, (laughs) CrossFit's become pretty um, doctrinaire in certain ways, so I don't know. But I will say one thing, though, about um, erectile function, if I could. Sure. You know, doctors nowadays recognize that Erectile function, you know, how hard your penis can get is a really sensitive and very accurate indicator 
of a man's cardiovascular health, right? So if a guy goes into a doctor and he, and he says, I've got erectile dysfunction, first thing the doctor wants to do is a bunch of blood work and cardiovascular disease tests because the doctor knows, wow, that never happens by itself. It's a reflection of your systemic kind of blood supply and, and blood function, and we need to get that checked out. The implication is a woman can use erectile function as a kind of proxy for male cardiovascular health, right? If he can get a nice degree of firmness, then she's pretty confident, oh, even if he's whatever, 50 years old, he's still pretty fit, at least in terms of his, his blood system. Uh, so I'm fascinated by these things that you can tell about somebody through sex that might not be obvious. One of the funniest things I've heard in a long time, I, the most popular class at UCSB, where I actually went to school, was called Human Sexuality. And, and it was taught by a husband and wife couple uh, whose names I forgot. It was 20-something years ago. And at the, the last day of the class you could hand out little questions and they'd answer any question of any type on stage. And since it was, you know, a couple, it, it, it was screamingly funny half the time. But the one yeah. question that stood out the most was I'm on a very, very low calorie diet. And my boyfriend tells me that there's no calories when I swallow. And I mean, you can imagine a thousand college students laughing for five minutes after yeah. the question, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, it's really funny because the calorie burn thing there, like, you know, do I get this and what calories in, calories out? I, I'm not a fan of calories in, calories out as a way to lose weight. It never worked for me. But that that was probably just the best. It wasn't meant to be a joke, <laughs> but the, the best joke I've ever heard. So it was it was awesome. The answer, by the way, was yeah. 36 calories on average. Still accurate? That sounds about right. <laughs> Sure. Not 5,000 like some, some rumors no, are out there. No, 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 no. Um, yeah, that sounds like a great class. And actually, I use um, one of those professors wrote the uh, human sexuality textbook that I use when I wrote, when I teach my students. So, oh, wonderful. Okay. Yeah. It, it was a pleasure to take the class because I actually learned quite a lot. And it was just one of the best taught classes I'd had. And uh, I'm forgetting their names now. But if you know their names, drop them. But for sure, I'm sure they might appreciate knowing that their work yeah. had impact. Yeah, sure. All right, let's talk about common myths around female orgasm. So I'm working on a paper with a sex researcher now where one common myth we're trying to dispel is that there's a, a clear and distinct difference between clitoral orgasm and vaginal orgasm. Now, there's been a long debate ever since Freud, right? Freud said when a woman's a girl, she might have clitoral orgasm through clitoral stimulation, but if she becomes a sexually mature woman, she's supposed to start having vaginally centered orgasms just through intercourse without clitoral stimulation. That's sort of a definition of sexual maturity in the Freudian world. And then ever since then, there's been a back and forth where a lot of the feminists have, have sort of tried to reclaim the clitoris, right, as the the center of female pleasure and satisfaction and, and tried to kind of educate men about that. But the last 10 years, we've learned, oh my God, there's a lot more to female sexual anatomy than we ever imagined, right? If you actually look at the homologies, the anatomical similarities between males and females, there's parts of the, the clitoris that are actually wrapped around the vaginal entrance 
that kind of correspond to the the blood inflated sacs in the penis, right? And what I think is happening with a lot of women is those vestibular bulbs, as they're called, which are their erectile function, often they don't get engorged enough during sex. So for a woman having sex without those vestibular bulbs being engorged would be kind of like a guy trying to have sex without an erection. It just wouldn't work very well. It wouldn't feel exciting or good. And so the anatomy is far more complex than just clitoris versus vagina. We've got data showing women can't really distinguish where an orgasm is localized that clearly or reliably. Is that the average women or like it seems like some women are better at that than others? Yeah, I mean, the more sexual experience a woman has, uh, probably the more partners she's had, the better the sex she has, the brighter she is, the more articulate, you know, the better she can probably localize what's, what's happening. So that's one issue. There's a mystery about female orgasm, which is why there's such a high proportion of women not reach orgasm during intercourse with men, right? And some people have argued, oh, that shows female orgasm is not an adaptation. It's just a kind of side effect of males being able to have an orgasm in order to ejaculate. Elizabeth Lloyd at Indiana University made that argument in her 2005 book. I think that's wrong. I've argued in the mating mind, for example, that if you think of orgasm for women as a mate choice system, it should be discriminating, right? It should separate the men from the boys. If a woman had an orgasm given like any sex with any male lover, no matter how young or incompetent or unhealthy or low status, right? If she always orgasmed, then having an orgasm wouldn't give her any information about the guy, right? So what you want is awesome world-shaking orgasms with great males who have great traits and to be left completely cold by bad males with bad traits. So a guy who's more Um, attentive to your needs might give you better orgasms and might make a better partner. Okay, great evolutionary argument. Yeah, and... It still hasn't quite made it into like the sexual medicine field, which still classifies women not having orgasms as a medical dysfunction. And they're still looking for pharmaceutical drugs that could, quote, cure that, like, you know, Viagra sort of tries to cure erectile dysfunction. But they might just be, frankly, with the wrong men. Or they might not have enough sexual experience with different men to know what really clicks for them, works for them. When I was doing research for uh, the Better Baby book, and this is a book uh, that my wife and I wrote about epigenetics and about three months before pregnancy and what to do during pregnancy to have better gene expression in your kids and less risk of certain diseases like autism. One of the things that came out was that when a woman is on the pill, her pheromone receptors change subtly. So she ends up basically thinking that her mate smells good. Yeah, <laughs> But when she goes off the pill, the smells change. And all of a sudden, what would have been a good phenotype match isn't a good phenotype match. Does that have anything to do with a change in orgasms? Like are pheromones and phenotype sensing between the sexes a part of this equation that you're aware of? 
Well, certainly that's a, that's a striking concern. And when I, when I teach my students about these ovulatory cycle effects and how women's preferences for male traits actually shift a little bit. So when women are at peak fertility, they're a little more attracted to guys with slightly more masculine facial features, more height, more upper body muscles, guys who are a little more assertive and socially dominant. And I actually had a couple in one of my classes where the woman was on hormonal contraception on the pill and she heard this lecture and then a week later decided to go off the pill. Her boyfriend was also in the class. They were both research assistants in my lab. And lo and behold, a month later, she breaks up with him because <laughs> she, she decides he's too feminized and too wimpy wow. for her taste. He was not pleased with me, but <laughs> <laughs> there is some evidence now that yeah, the pill, um, yeah, the pill disrupts female choice mechanisms. And what that means is, if a woman meets a guy when she's on the pill, and then goes off the pill, her attraction to him it might go down, it might go up. It's pretty unlikely to stay exactly the same. Another thing that came out in the research for this book was that women who are off the pill uh, when they're ovulating, if they're smarter than average, their IQ actually drops when they're ovulating. And if they're less intelligent than average, their IQ actually goes up when they're ovulating. It's allegedly to attract a better mate. What's your take on this? Have you come across any research like that? I haven't come across that research. The only The only thing I've seen kind of along those lines is that there's a couple studies showing women get a little bit more verbally fluent and creative at peak fertility, right? As if they're kind of making more mating effort to really kind of poach the genes from the best, brightest guys, right? And they need to up their game in terms of their sense of humor in uh -huh. order to, to do that. Um, I haven't heard about any effects on intelligence and... This came from my wife. Uh, she's a Karolinska trained physician, uh, okay. smarter than I am, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and when she ovulates, like she, she kind of swears sometimes because she's like, I, I can't remember things. I, I feel dumb. My brain's not working. And it, it's an effect that she, she really feels, which is, it's funny. And I, I can see it in her. Like the normal behaviors aren't there. And just the normal, like mental quickness that you, you recognize in someone it changes. And so, you know, that's an N equals one observation, not a study, but she's mentioned the study multiple times and I yeah. find it fascinating. There's also a uh, Bree Schaff was on the show, a professional athlete and had shut down her ovulation using a, a very strong ketosis diet because she wanted to perform at top level. And when you're ovulating, you don't always perform at top level. So the monthly variations yeah. in performance were just too much of an inconvenience, but instead of using hormones, it was just nutrition to do it. Yeah. What's your take on using nutrition to turn off ovulation? Well, I mean, that's, that's what anorexic women do. That's what long-distance runners do, right? There's even a theory in evolutionary psychology that women kind of manipulate each other and each other's body images in order to do a kind of reproductive suppression. Oh, that's so fascinating. So if a dominant, if a kind of alpha female can convince all her underlings that they're all total losers and need to lose weight and become anorexic, then, you know, they'll run around doing that and <laughs> stop ovulating, leaving all the reproductive opportunities for the alpha female.
No way. And the alpha, yeah. alpha female, of course, publicly is eating only lettuce, but then goes home and eats, you know, a stick of butter and uh, some Ben and Jerry's and, and goes yeah. on her way. <laughs> and, and, and I had no idea. Pretty, there's some pretty good analogs of that in some other primate species, actually. No um, kidding. Where, yeah, the, the female status has a lot to do with, with which females are ovulating and fertile and getting enough to eat versus which are kind of reproductively suppressed. Wow. I had no idea. Uh, this, this is just fascinating. All right. What about uh, one taste? And, you know, Tim Ferriss wrote about you know, the 15-minute orgasm experiment in four-hour body. And you know, there's a, a group of people who say orgasms multiple times a day for women increase oxytocin, make people happy. Um, what's the evolutionary psychology perspective on those practices? I'm I'm only just learning like third hand about them because like I have a sex researcher colleague who's working with the one taste group um, out of Rutgers or she's based at UCLA okay and, um, so I'm not familiar with the techniques I am highly confident there's not much scientific research on it yet in in like the academic journals but. That's a fairly typical state of affairs that academia lags about 20 or 30 years behind <laughs> behind the bedroom <laughs> behind the bedroom and the cutting edge and it takes a certain critical mass of kind of demand and, and knowledge and familiarity with those things for for research to get done and also bear in mind the federal government in America is not keen on funding sex research yeah right if you go to the National Science Foundation and say, hey, I've got a great way to increase gross domestic product by half of 1%. They'll, they'll be like, yeah, here's $10 million. Go do right. that. If you're like, I could double the orgasm rate in America, <laughs> they'll go, not interested. Nope. The senators will object. That will be a problem. Right. Okay. Got it. So I had uh, one of the, in fact, the head researcher for uh, One Taste uh, on the podcast, and uh, I believe she was out of Rutgers. Fascinating guest, and they had done some statistical analysis of, you know, what what quadrant of the clitoris is most sensitive in the average woman, and can you go to one o'clock versus noon? And uh, I've actually had a chance to meet Nicole Daydon and chat with her about it, and she goes very quickly into esoteric uh, Buddhist practices, Taoism. Things like that. What's your take on the sexual meditation side of things and, and all of that? Because you do delve into shamanic realms as much as you go into just sex, which is what we've talked about for a lot of time so yeah. far. Well, I'm I'm maybe ninety percent sex, ten percent shamanism. But yeah. you know, this is another instance where there are no doubt a lot of cultural traditions around the world that have taken sex a lot more seriously than than American society and that have built up a body of wisdom probably most of which is bullshit, but some of which probably has some merit. And it's also pretty clear that in increasing almost any aspect of mental health, whether it's overcoming depression or schizophrenia or anxieties, just practicing mindfulness or doing almost any kind of meditation is really helpful. And the same is very likely you know, in my humble opinion, to be true for sexual dysfunctions, where a lot of what people are frustrated about in their sex lives, they could probably resolve a lot of those problems by just paying attention to their breath for 10 minutes a day, <laughs> you know, or 
being here now, being in their bodies. Um, and a lot of sex therapy is quite consistent with that. It's all about yeah. sen- sensate focus, right? Pay attention to what your body is sensing rather than anxieties or the past or the future or how you look under candlelight or whatever. So um, I think just the way that that kind of Buddhist tradition has now, it's now really taken over clinical psychology, right? The irony is the best evidence-based practices in psychotherapy now are all derived from mindfulness, which is derived from Buddhism. (laughs) (laughs) Which itself is probably derived from shamanic practice, if you believe that bone people came over and uh, were the precursors of Buddhism. That is, uh, that's amazing. And I want to delve deeper on that. I I read a Taoist text a while back. Uh, Actually, I should say my wife translated a Czech text that she had for some reason. It was a Buddhist text written in that language. And it said that the equation for the amount or the, the number of days between ejaculations for men was actually an equation. This is amazing. And they said, take your age minus seven and divide by four. And that gives you the number of days. And you should abstain from having an ejaculation, not an orgasm, just an ejaculation for that number of days if you want to maintain your health. And if you want to live essentially forever, which is one of the goals of Taoism, yeah. then once every 30 days and make sure that the length of the orgasm or slash ejaculation, although I think they meant orgasm, keep it to under an hour. This is the male orgasm, not the female. BS or not BS? It's. I don't know. I don't. I think you know. Certainly, semen production and sperm production falls off as guys age, and there are a lot of hidden costs to producing sperm and semen. Uh, the prostaglandins beyond the thirty-six calories, right? Yeah. It's not just about the energy. There's a lot riding on sperm, right? Your genetic legacy, literally. And semen also, uh, some people have argued, contains dozens of complicated chemical compounds, some of which are specifically evolved to be psychoactive, to kind of manipulate the female nervous system, in a sense. Right? There are these claims that if you have sex without condoms versus with condoms, the women who have sex without condoms are happier, allegedly, because the semen contains psychoactive antidepressant chemicals. Wow. Which makes total adaptive sense because if if you're a guy and you want to keep that woman having sex with you and if you can biochemically manipulate her nervous system into being happier when she's around you, then you'll do that. So, yeah, sperm and semen are kind of costly to produce. We don't know how costly. I've never seen any studies on kind of optimal ejaculation you know, rates as, as guys age. And this is probably one of those domains where the kind of quantified self-movement could just like gather the data and just millions of guys could report how they feel given different systematic variations in this. And then we'd know. I, I did a talk at the QS conference a couple of years ago on this. And for about a year, I tested that equation. So mm-hmm. I tracked my daily, like, life satisfaction in terms of, you know, my, my career, my home relationships, things like that came up with a number. Yes, it's subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tested the, you know, once every eight days, I tested the once every 30 days. Uh, and it was 
a terribly difficult experiment to do because all it takes is one little slip up. You know, like I was 21 days into a 30 day period and I got to start over and it's, it's a little frustrating as you can imagine. Yeah. But what I did find, which really I kind of thought this was going to be BS, uh, but what I did find was that all of those cases, my general satisfaction with life went up. The frequency of uh, of sex went up dramatically because when you don't finish, like, could we go yeah. again tomorrow? Yeah. yeah. Which, okay, so the number of female orgasms goes up when you do that. And the number of intimate encounters goes up even though you're not finishing. Uh, so at, at the end of that year, I had definitely learned like a new level of nervous system control that I didn't have. And in order to have that level of whatever staying power, I had to do the heart rate variability exercises. I'm a certified heart math coach. I use with my clients to reduce anxiety in boardrooms and everything else, just to allow people to be more in the zone in a flow state. But without the breathing techniques, I don't know that it's possible to do that. When I was done, I ended up at the end of the year I felt like I, I've learned how to control the part of my nervous system that's responsible for hunger. And, and like, I'm not going to die if I'm a little hungry. And I used to really, at some biological level, think I was going to die. At another level, you think you're going to die if you don't have sex because it's species survival. We're wired that way. Yeah. I'm done with that. Whether I have sex or I don't have sex, I'm not going to die. I don't feel like I'm going to die. The anxiety that comes with it is gone. So I, it was a great experiment. I'm happy I did it. And I, I'm, I'm sort of amazed that there isn't more data on this. But now we've got like a million no-fappers out there. And are you following the no-fap kind of thing? No. What's the no-fap? This is in about the last three years. These are guys who give up. Uh, I don't remember what FAP stands for, but they're essentially doing a similar experiment. They give up um, porn. That would be the P there. And they give up masturbation. So they're like, basically, I'm not going to masturbate. I'm not going to do porn. And there's various flavors of you know who, who's how extreme and all. But there's a very large number of people who do it, and they're – I think the reason it works is they're resetting dopamine sensitivity because you know, porn just whacks your dopamine receptors to the point that yeah. nothing is going to satisfy you. But they're reporting, especially younger guys, just profound improvements in, in energy and motivation. And frankly, I grew a lot of the Bulletproof company when I was not yeah. ejaculating all the time. I had this just yeah. intense energy, like Napoleon Hill writes and boxers and all that. Is there any academic evidence that says – Limiting ejaculation makes you perform better, lift heavier, kick harder, anything like that? Or is this just kind of something that martial artists do? It, it makes total sense to me, right? I yeah. mean, my, my whole career is kind of built around analyzing male mating effort, right? And in all its manifestations, right? So mating effort is the time, energy, attention you invest in trying to attract and retain women. Now, if you're ejaculating all the time, your body's kind of sending your brain signals that you're succeeding. There's apparently some mate, even if it's only a virtual porno mate. And thus, you can downregulate your mating effort, right? You don't need to be ambitious and get up early and exercise and accomplish shit. Um, so I suspect that, you know, the more often a guy will ejaculate, um, the less mating effort. And for me, that means the less creativity, yeah. right? the less ambition, the less extroversion, the less social networking. Probably your body is also getting the signals that say, I don't have to bother looking that attractive. Right? <laughs> yeah. I don't have to look like hot single guy anymore. So it makes complete sense. But here again, we academics are completely 
failing the rest of humanity. People are not studying this. I've seen zero research on it. And that's sad because what gets reported, for example, in sports medicine is people say, oh, there's no research that you know, having sex the night before the big game has any effect on big game performance. Well, there might be no research, but that does not mean there's no effect. There's no research that the sky is actually blue either, but we're pretty sure it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, uh, there's also no research that jumping out of an airplane, uh, a double blind research, jumping out of an airplane without a parachute will kill you, but I don't want to be in that experiment, right? So there's some things. I'll tell you, my data was unequivocal. There is an orgasm or an ejaculation hangover for men, at least for me. It was, I, I didn't feel it, but in my data, I'm like, good God, the day after, I'm always, like my satisfaction, I don't like my job, I, I don't like yeah. my wife, I mean, I like her, but not as much. Uh, all that sort of thing, like nothing's as good. And women, I think, well, they know this, you know, they, they've noticed this in their mates forever. So maybe it's an old wives tale, but it seems to be based in, in reality, at least for some people, some of the time. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, also, there is research on what's called the affective shift, which is that when guys are kind of gearing up towards orgasm, having sex, they're really into the woman. She's more beautiful than anything. They're completely focused on her. She's amazing and wonderful, and they feel love and romance. And then, boom, about five seconds after ejaculation, the woman's attractiveness to the guy plummets. <laughs> And he gets grumpy and he doesn't want to talk. And he's like, oh, my God, I was so deluded. How, why did I think she was, she was special? So the shift from you know, before to after ejaculation in terms of his relationship to her is sudden and dramatic and, and pretty well documented. But this post-ejaculatory hangover, yeah, probably just a kind of continuation of that. One of the side effects of that experiment was during the times when I wasn't ejaculating as regularly as normal, um, was that uh, Lana said, basically, you're nicer to me. And I mentioned this on stage at Quantified Self Conference. And afterwards, there was a group of, I don't know, 20 or 30 people. And several couples said, oh, yeah, we've done a similar thing, but didn't maybe gather the data the same way. And all of the women said the same thing. Yeah, actually, they are a lot nicer this way. And I was kind of surprised by that, too, because... You know, apparently there's some kind of variance that's very well hidden from us as men, uh, but it appears to be there. So I, I mean, I would really like to see more research on that because that could shed a lot of light on relationship behaviors. Oh, for sure. And you know, guys being nice is just another form of mating effort, right? <laughs> that's a tweet right there. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm not surprised women notice because none of us notice our own moods. As easily as our spouses do, right? That, that's very true. Well, let's talk for a couple minutes before we come to the end of the show about uh, how uh, shamanic practice comes into play as an evolutionary psychologist uh, focused on sex. Uh, how did you get into that? Why is that a part of what you do? It's it's not a big part. I mean, it's been an interest of mine. I just happened to get invited for reasons I am still slightly baffled by, to talk on a panel about shamanism and, uh. you know, paleo effects. I think it might have had something to do with a, a paper I wrote about uh, drug legalization policy a couple okay. years ago. Okay. And that was kind of a, I guess, a signal to the conference organizers, oh, he's into evolution and he's also not too closed-minded about psychoactive drugs. So 
Got it. Bring them bring on the shamanism panel. Let's see what happens. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there are arguments that sex is a gateway to altered states. In fact, one of the books I've read about that talks about how women more than men, but, but both sexes can have full out-of-body, very spiritual experiences some of the time or with some lovers versus other lovers. Is there an evolutionary reason for that or any other, any other comments on that? Well, just like I mentioned, you know, the, it's important for a woman to di- discriminate between different lovers um, and also different contexts, different sets and settings and, you know, degrees of propitiousness. Like, is it springtime and the wet season and everything's in bloom and if, if I got pregnant, I could feed my baby for sure, right? That's romantic and exciting and leads to better sex than dead of winter, everything's dark and depressing and nothing's growing. And if I got pregnant, I'd miscarry. So women will discriminate between like no orgasm versus having an orgasm with a guy. But then once you have a pretty good orgasm, you know, you might as well continue that discriminative ability all the way upwards so that if there's a guy who's just absolutely awesome, right, you find a genetic gold mine or just an amazing partner, then you also need some way that your mind kind of signals to yourself as a woman, this is an extraordinary experience. If I can get this guy to commit to me, I'll have genetic immortality. We'll have eight amazing kids and I will have 30 grandkids and we will populate this whole continent, right? So I think that kind of sense of sexual transcendence that you get with a really amazing lover is a kind of marker for, in a way, the possible genetic future that you and he might have together. A very interesting theory. I I love it. Uh, It it makes sense. So someone who who does more than just a good orgasm but puts you in another realm, maybe, and I'm saying that for both partners, but... You know, maybe there's more to that relationship than just sex. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, evolution is happy to use any incentive system it can find to get us to do things that are good for long-term reproduction. So if the human brain is capable of transcendent or out-of-body or, you know, freaky psychedelic states... And if evolution can kind of use that somehow to motivate us to do stuff that's good for reproductive success, it'll do that. And it, sex might be one way that it kind of hacks that that system. Is there an evolutionary explanation for like BDSM and, and things like that, that that you've come across that never seem to make sense from an evolutionary perspective to me, but I'm not trained in that, so? There's certainly... You know, a big overlap between sex and and dominance and power that's not been very well explored yet. It's a it's a tricky subject because even my female colleagues who work on things like doing a Darwinian analysis of romance novels, right? They get flack for pointing out, oh my God, they're kind of a lot of rape fantasies and <laughs> and romance. Statistically novels. speaking, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of kind of oh, naughty pirate captain abducted me and took me away from my home and family, and yet then it was the hottest sex ever. 
that fits very well with what the anthropologists say, that there's a lot of tribal warfare. There's a lot of capture of women in tribal warfare. A lot of our female ancestors did not choose all of their male partners voluntarily. They were kind of plucked out of their tribe while their dads and brothers were killed. And they were taken off somewhere else. Now, once they get to the new tribe, they might still have the scope for either choosing which captor they mate with or seducing you know, the leader into actually kind of committing to them or loving them. So there's a lot of very politically difficult dynamics of power and status and kind of abduction and, and all of that that play out in fiction, right? And we see them in movies and TV. But honestly, most academics don't have the guts to touch them. <laughs> so not, not a lot and, of research there. Plus, it's probably hard yeah. to get like a double-blind study. Like, How would you possibly go about that? I, I can't even imagine. But yeah. um, I'm sure whatever academic does it is, is probably going to have a, a, an interesting path in front of them. Yes. Well, Jeffrey, this has been a very fascinating interview. And there's a question that every guest mm -hmm. has answered on the show and one I'd like to pose of you. Oh, yes, the question. Okay, the question. Given all of the things you know, not just about evolution, but just your entire life's journey, the three most important pieces of advice that you would offer for people who want to perform better at whatever it is they're here to do. So if you want to kick ass, do these three things. If you want to kick ass, pay a lot of attention to understanding the other sex and how they're different and how they're similar. Um, most people make only a cursory effort to do that. And it really handicaps them in their mating lives, but also in their professional lives, um, in their education, in, in relating to you know, their own siblings and parents. Um, that's a major bit of advice that, that Tucker Max and I are doing in Mate is really most of the book is about trying to convince young guys to make a little effort to get inside <laughs> the heads of young women, which honestly most of them have never done. That's fantastic right. advice. I wish someone had given it to me. So, yes, write that. <laughs> yeah. Second thing is most of the, the real productivity I've had in my professional life has been choosing great collaborators and having the willingness to dump collaborators who prove to be disappointing and, and really stick with the ones who work well with me and do multiple projects with them over time. So it's about kind of building your social network, um, doing it selectively, and doing it in a way that pays equal attention to somebody's just raw capability, but also how well you personally get along with them. Like, I can get, a, I can get along with some really difficult personalities in science that most people can't get along with. And then other people just rub me the wrong way. And you just have to kind of go with your gut about that and you know if you're like an internet marketer just choose your joint venture partners really carefully if you're looking for a, a mate and somebody looks good on paper but you're just not feeling the chemistry just trust that third thing just keep cultivating new skills on a kind of lifelong basis. This is something I didn't bother to do particularly in my marriage very well. 
you know, I wouldn't set myself goals of like learn a specific new thing this weekend. But I think if you get in the habit of doing that, um, it makes you a hugely more interesting person at age 40 than you were at age 20. And you learn how to learn more effectively. And you've got something much cooler to talk about than just what you watched on Netflix last night or, <laughs> or some cool post you saw on Facebook or, or some great porno you watched or whatever, right? And I'm trying to implement that in my life. Like, you know, I finally learned how to ride a motorcycle like a month ago. And I'd cool. never done that before. And I probably won't ride because it's ludicrously dangerous. <laughs> and I don't want to die young. But just knowing how to do it, right, and being able to say, yeah, that's how I spent my weekend. Uh, if people get in the habit of doing that, just identify something you haven't learned how to do before and then just go learn how to do it. If you keep that habit up, then in 10 years, you'll be in, you know, you'll be an amazingly more capable person than you are now. Fantastic advice. Uh, Jeffrey Miller, thanks for being on the show. What are your coordinates? Where can people find you? We'll put all these links in the show notes, but a lot of people are driving right now. So website, Twitter handle, where should they go to learn more, especially about your new book? Well, I'm trying to stay off Twitter at the moment for reasons I don't want to talk about. But <laughs> if they if they Google search my name, Jeffrey with a G Miller, you'll find my University of New Mexico webpage. It's got all my papers on it. Um, my books are all, you know, on Amazon. Uh, and they're Tucker called Max, Spent and the Mating Game. Spent and the Mating Mind. Oh, Mating Mind, sorry. And uh, I also co-edited a book called Mating Intelligence. Um, and then Tucker Max and I have our new website, The Mating Grounds. So look for thematinggrounds.com. It's got our blogs. We're going to have a lot of um, video and interviews with experts and podcasts and um, great advice, especially to young men about how to understand women and how to cultivate the traits that women want. Fantastic work. I think you're doing good things for the world. Thanks again. Thanks, Dave. Great to be with you. You've probably heard me talking about whole body vibration on one podcast or another, but if you haven't, check out the Bulletproof whole body vibration platform called the Bulletproof Vibe on UpgradedSelf.com. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.